Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hi, it's just Susan today. Beckett and I were ready, prepared, scheduled, and quite excited to cover someone who is entirely different than the woman I'm talking about today. But due to a series of unfortunate incidences at the Graham household, including her internet going out, and I don't mean going out as in a figurative thing, it came out of the pole. She has no internet, not today, not tomorrow, not the day after. So we decided there was too much and that I would just fly solo and throw out as many bird puns as I could in the next hour. I do recommend that you go back and listen to the episode about Zephyr Wright. That would be episode 151. Not only because Zephyr was an amazing woman that you need to know about, but because we already touched on and explained a lot of things that happened when uh, Lady Bird Johnson and Zephyr Wright's lives were parallel. And also, we discussed a lot of things about what was going on in the country, especially in regard to race relations, not only in Zephyr Wright's episode, but also in the episode of Fannie Lou Hamer. So I suggest you go back and listen to both of those if you haven't yet. And now... On with the show. And here's your 30-second summary. Ladybird, Ladybird, fly away home. Your house is on fire and your children are gone. All except one, and her name is Anne, and she hid under the frying pan. Oh, shoot. Sorry. Wrong Ladybird. The end. Let's talk about Ladybird Johnson. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1912, Harriet Quimby became the first woman to fly across the English Channel. The Summer Olympics were held in Stockholm, Sweden. With just a few Model T Fords, Japan began its first taxi services. Fifteen women were fired from the Curtis Publishing Company in Philadelphia for dancing the turkey trot on their lunch break. The bust of Queen Nefertiti was discovered in Egypt. New Mexico and Arizona both became U.S. states. Juliette Gordon-Lowe founded the organization that would become the Girl Scouts. First Lady Helen Taft planted the very first cherry trees in Washington, D.C. Clara Barton died. Pat Nixon, Julia Child, Nancy Wake, Minnie Pearl, and Doris Duke were all born. And in 1912, a baby girl was born in Texas who would one day become the First Lady of the United States under very tragic circumstances. Claudia Alta Taylor was born on December 22, 1912, at her family's home in Karnak, Texas. She was the third, last, and only daughter of Thomas Jefferson Taylor and Minnie Patillo Taylor. Both of baby Claudia's parents had come from the same county in Alabama, Otago County, but their childhoods couldn't have been more different. Papa TJ's family was poor, very, very poor. TJ himself was a fifth child, but his father died about a month after he was born, and his mother quickly remarried, and that union created eight more kids. That's 13 children, two parents, and a house of a tenant farmer, which is not very large. Now, we had talked about tenant farming and sharecropping in the Fannie Lou Hamer episode, the difference being that tenant farmers 
rented the land that they worked on and the crops were theirs. And sharecroppers work for the landowner. But neither is a very lucrative occupation. And both of them pretty much doom that family to poverty for the rest of their lives because the landowners do everything that they can to keep control financially over these families. And that was what was happening. And all those kids, just like in Fannie Lou Hamer's family, they had to go out and work the fields with their parents. We really don't know too much about Papa TJ's education. Presumably, he had a little bit, maybe in a one-room schoolhouse. Uh, His story actually doesn't really pick up until he was a teenager. Family lore says that one day, TJ was out plowing a field, and he saw a young woman riding a horse across the field. When she and the horse jumped a fence, TJ's heart went aflutter, and he had to get to know that girl. That girl was Minnie Lee Patillo. And the next time he saw her, she was also riding her horse, but this time she was thrown from it. TJ gallantly raced over to rescue her and bring her back to her home. Her home, where her father was, and Minnie's father, Luke Patillo, turned out to not be too much of a fan of the Taylor family. The Patillos owned most of the county. And Minnie's father, Luke, he was a bootstrap story. He had been a penniless Confederate officer who had worked himself up from being a farmer to being a farm owner to being a peddler and a merchant, landowner, landlord. He bought up land that had been in arrears for taxes at pennies on the dollar. All this work made Luke Patillo the wealthiest man in the county, but he was reputed to also be the meanest. Luke brought that gruff personality to his relationship with his wife, Sarah, Minnie's mother. Now, Sarah was inclined to what they called like outbursts. Just reading the description, to me, it sounds like people I know who are clinically depressed and have anxiety disorders, not just some Southern belle having a moment. But what these did was teach her children, Minnie, her two brothers, Claude and Harry, and her sister, Effie, not only how to hide their emotions and not bring up things that are bothering them, they just didn't want to stir the pot at all. They wanted to blend into the background because they did not want the wrath of their father or to be the cause of their mother's having another breakdown. Minnie was not the greatest at not stirring the pot. She was kind of the family rebel. She was, of course, raised very wealthy. She was educated. She loved poetry. She loved reading. And she could talk to anyone about anything from arts to business. Papa Patillo certainly wasn't going to turn over his daughter to a tenant farmer, which, of course, made the relationship between TJ and Minnie all that more exciting. So they would sneak out and see each other on the sly until TJ got up the nerve and went to the Patillo house to ask for Minnie's hand. And Papa Patillo basically laughed at him. But not only did TJ want Minnie's hand in marriage, he wanted everything that Papa Patillo had. He wanted to be rich. He wanted to be powerful. He wanted to be landowning. He wanted to be shrewd. He saw his life looking an awful lot like Minnie's father. TJ's response to being laughed at is kind of the beginning of his own bootstrap to success trope. It was one of those you'll see, I'm going to make money and come back for her situations. TJ was 25. He knew that his life in Alabama was leading to one just like his stepfather's. Poor tenant farmer, no power, no money, no land, just a very hard living. So there's three versions of the story as to how and why TJ left Alabama for Texas. And one version of the story He saw a man in a wagon 
and he wondered if the large back wheels of the wagon would ever catch up to the small front ones. So he started following it, and before he knew it, he had passed the point of no return, so he simply went on to Texas. Okay, probably not. Version number two. He was fleeing Alabama on suspicion of conducting a train robbery. Mm, probably not. And the final one. Life in the new west of Texas couldn't be any worse than life in war-torn Alabama. So that's where he went. TJ landed in Karnak, Texas. It's in the northeastern corner of Texas outside of Shreveport, Louisiana. Karnak, which is spelled K-A-R-N-A-C-K, was a misspelling. The founding fathers were trying to name it after Karnak, Egypt, which is K-A-R-N-A-K. No C. But Karnak had a lot going for it. It had really fertile soil. It was in close proximity to New Orleans, which is a port town. So cotton from Karnak can easily get to New Orleans. And from New Orleans, it can go anywhere in the world. Instead of working in the fields, TJ went to the other end of the cotton production, the processing of it. He learned how and then set up his own cotton processing operation. When he made a little money at that, he set up a little shack of mercantile. It kept growing and growing. And as he made money, and so he bought up land in a very similar way to Minnie's father, you know, as cheaply as he could, as much as he could, and got it working with tenant farmers and sharecroppers on his properties. When he thought he had enough saved up, he went back to Alabama and found a Minnie who was also itching to get out of Alabama. She wanted a life different than she had. Now, Minnie, at this point, she was 25. She's very much a non-cliched Southern belle of the time. She was 5'5". She was considered handsome. Some sources called her stout, which I read as athletic. Uh, She also didn't have a whole lot of marriage options in Alabama. So here's her handsome bad boy coming back with a story that makes it sound like he's setting up an operation and a home just like she's moving from. This is a lateral move for her from Alabama to Karnak. Family didn't agree. No family from either side attended the wedding. Although it was reported in the local papers, there was an announcement that read, The bride is the daughter of one of Otago's most esteemed citizens, Mr. Luther Patillo. The groom is an old Otago boy and a young man of great promise. They piled everything that Minnie owned onto a wagon, and that would be all of her clothing and all of her books. Minnie was an avid reader, had been her whole life, and she had money, so she had books. And I totally understand this. She wasn't going anywhere without those books. So she piled those on the wagon with dreams of a life different than what she had in Alabama. The newlyweds headed west for their life in Texas. And she got her way. Her life was going to be very different than it was in Alabama, but not the way that she had hoped. TJ moved Minnie into a very small, very basic house that was right next door to his store. You don't accumulate the property and power that he had in such a short time by not working. He was always at work. He was always on the go, and he was never at home, which left Minnie alone with her books. Okay, that's good for a while. But she wanted more. She needed a little more excitement. She knew nobody in this town. She couldn't relate to anybody there. There was no cultural opportunities like she'd had in Alabama. So she took things into her own hands. She bought herself a car. She hired herself a driver. She hired help for the house because Minnie Taylor was not raised to be a housewife. Oh, sure. She was raised to manage a house staff, but certainly not to cook the meals and clean the house herself. 
which she did when she first got there, but she wasn't very good at it. She had enough money and no family, so there was very few Karnakian societal expectations on her. She was a suffragist. She followed politics. She wore turbans and veils and walked around barefoot and did pretty much whatever she wanted, all of which made her very much unlike the lady folk of eastern Texas. One of her neighbors summed it up like this. A lot of people didn't like her because she was aloof and a little strange. So Minnie and her sister Effie resumed their travels. They had been traveling before the marriage. Now, Effie is pretty interesting, too. She is also educated. Uh, She had gone to the Juilliard School to study piano. Even though TJ was always working and Minnie was reading her books and being driven around town and traveling when she could, they did find enough time to be together to have a son. About a year after they were married, their first child, Thomas Taylor Jr., was born. And about three years later, another son, Antonio, was born. The two pregnancies and still a life of semi-isolation and life with a semi-absentee husband who she had very little in common with, and he had several women on the side. This life really drained her physically and emotionally. So... She'd had enough. Minnie took the boys and went on an open-ended, extended trip back to Alabama. Then, with the children and the care of the help, she and Effie started traveling even more. Quite often, they headed to Battle Creek, Michigan, for recuperative time at the Kellogg Sanitarium. Kellogg Sanitarium had been open for about 40 years at this time. It was the place for upper-crust folks to get lectures and treatments to get educated on the current health trends. Their time at the sanitarium included a lot of exercise, a lot of enemas, a lot of steam baths. There was no alcohol. There was no caffeine. There was a lot of vegetables and greens. I can see how that would make you healthy. While Minnie was off being restored and living in Alabama, let's be honest, TJ was becoming the wheeler dealer in everything. That's what the sign said over his shop. T.J. Thomas, dealer in everything. (laughs) You need it? T.J.'s got it. Around town, they called him Captain Taylor or Mr. Boss. And he was a kind of a jerk. He would do things like throw a 50-cent piece on the ground in front of two men of color. And when one of them went to pick it up, called him the N-word and said something like, Don't do that. Don't you know? If my money stays in one place long enough, it grows. But he was kind of right. At this point, he had about 15,000 acres of cotton, two general stores, and the same business standards that his father-in-law had. He learned from the best. It's also rumored that he had a son, a mixed-race son, with one of those side women. Well, Minnie was gone for a long time, six years. Six years after she had left, TJ decided to bring his family back to Texas. He arrived in Alabama like he had the first time, telling her, I bought you the finest house. It was built by slave labor. It's called the Brick House. The Brick House was a two-story plantation. So Minnie agreed and took the boys and moved back to Texas. Minnie had picked up some habits that she shared with TJ when she got home, habits from the Kellogg Institute, 40 glasses of water a day, lots of exercise. She even convinced him to take a daily cold shower outside and, quote, shake like a wet dog to dry off, which is exactly the same terminology that my own grandfather used. And he is actually from Indiana, which is close to Michigan. So anyway, I digress. Even with all that healthy living, Minnie wasn't exactly a figure of health. She did get pregnant two more times and suffered miscarriages. 
But at age 38, at 5.32 a.m. on December 22, 1912, Minnie gave birth to a six-pound, eight-ounce baby girl. She named her daughter after her brother, Claude. The baby's name was Claudia Alta Taylor. At this point, brother Tommy was 11 and Tony was 8. And very soon after she was born, they got sent to upstate New York to boarding school. Minnie said that she wanted an education for them that was better than what Karnak had to offer, and she's probably right. And the fact that she was a very frail woman at this point and didn't have the stamina for three kids and one of them being a newborn. (laughs) She even started looking around for boarding schools for girls when Claudia was just a tot. Claudia was in the hands of a nursemaid. Of course she was. She earned her nickname very early in life. Now, there are a couple stories going around how she got her nickname. The most common is that her nursemaid, a black woman named Alice Tittle, looked at her and exclaimed, you're as pretty as a ladybird. Now, ladybird, for people in our area, a ladybird is a ladybug, not an actual female bird. That's the story that goes around the most. However, family lore has a second one, and that was that Papa TJ would pick up his little baby and say the nursery rhyme, Ladybird, ladybird, fly away home. Your house is on fire and your children will burn. Wow. Like a lot of nursery rhymes, that one's pretty tragic. So I looked it up and uh, apparently that particular one goes back to the 1700s. It may have been a reference to when Henry VIII broke off with the Catholic Church and it was a call for all Catholics to fly away home, meaning go back to Rome before bad things happened to them. It did turn into a farmer's incantation, which I prefer to reduce pests because ladybugs eat a lot of aphids. Aphids eat a lot of plants. So ladybugs are very good for your crops and they're very good for your garden. And you can actually buy them like a box of them to put in your garden. Whatever the origins of that nursery rhyme and whichever version you believe, the name stuck. Ladybird. She couldn't shake it later, even when she wanted to. Mama Minnie, although she was already researching boarding schools for girls, took her young tot daughter out campaigning against a candidate for county commissioner that she thought was a slacker. This candidate actually did lose the election at a time when Minnie was again pregnant. But when she was 44, Ladybird was five, Minnie either tripped over a dog and fell down the stairs or had a tubal pregnancy. Either way, she landed in the hospital and Ladybird was only able to visit her in the hospital. She didn't have many memories of her mother growing up, but she did remember this. She remembered her mother looking at her saying, poor child, nobody at home to care for you but the black nurse. Alice was standing right there. Shortly after she said that, Ladybird and Alice went home and Mama Minnie died. Exactly what she died of, we don't know. There is no death certificate. Papa TJ did have her buried at the Methodist Cemetery in town. But what he didn't do, he didn't tell Tommy and Tony that their mother had died for over a year. And he would often be heard wailing, now who's going to take care of that little girl? Right in front of Ladybird. He was such a swell guy. At first, Papa TJ did try to care for Ladybird. (laughs) I joke. Alice was caring for her. Although sometimes he took her to work with him. He would set up a cot near the coffins for her for her to sleep on if he worked late. 
But that didn't last very long. He put her on a train. Here is five-year-old Lady Bird Taylor with a sign around her neck that says, Deliver this child to John Will Patillo in Alabama. He sent her on a train by herself with a sign to Minnie's family back in Alabama. They took her and they kept her there for about a year. But then she was back in Texas and this time she wasn't alone. Her Aunt Effie, Minnie's unmarried sister, piano-playing, intelligent, world-traveling, educated sister, turned out to be who was going to raise this child. Aunt Effie at the time was almost 40, and unfortunately, she was about as strong as Minnie had been, which is not very much. Lady Bird later described her as delicate and airy and very gentle. She gave me many fine values, which I wouldn't trade for the world. Aunt Effie's method of child raising basically was to just keep an eye on Ladybird, who was becoming very independent at a really young age. Effie, who didn't call her Ladybird, but called her Bammy. I wish I knew why. <laughs> That's adorable. Her idea of childcare was to just keep an eye on was to just keep an eye on the child. Take her on walks outside. Talk with her, of course. They talked all the time. But Effie would just sit on a blanket in a field while little Ladybird would go running around and playing and fishing and swimming and exploring and everything outside. She just loved those times, which eventually had to end because she had to go to school. She did start in the one-room schoolhouse in Karnak, the one that her brothers had gone to before Minnie decided that that was not the education she wanted for them. But unless she was going to be sent away, which no one seemed to want to do, Lady Bird went to that school until she was in about seventh grade. She was very smart. She did well in school, but she preferred to be outside. She preferred to be canoeing in the bayous. And every spring, she would have a ceremony. When the first daffodils bloomed, that one would be designated the queen or the princess. Love that. I'm going to totally do that next year when the daffodils come up. On her time off, what Aunt Effie also did that Minnie would have done is to take Lady Bird up to the Kellogg Sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. In Battle Creek, Effie just wanted to get herself healthier. And Lady Bird, Lady Bird was an adolescent. She loved to go on adventures. She really just wanted to fly. And one day, she did for the low cost of $2.50, which is about 25 bucks now. There was a biplane and she took a ride on it. Effie thought it was dangerous, but Lady Bird thought it was a lark. Oh, there's so many bird puns we can do. She wanted more adventure like that. TJ remarried two years after Lady Bird came back home. His new bride, Beulah Wisdom, Lady Bird said that she was rather pretty in a, quote, coarse and crude sort of way. That second marriage is going to last 14 years. There's no children. And they will divorce when TJ discovers that Beulah is doing exactly what he's doing and having an affair. After seventh grade, her time at Karnak's one-room schoolhouse ended. Lady Bird and Effie moved to Marshall, Texas. It was about 13 miles away from Karnak so that Lady Bird could continue her education there. Uh, at the time, Marshall was the big city in the area. There was garden clubs for Effie to join. There was proper ladies. There was a lot of people that came from Alabama. Effie was able to meet her people. But, but for an intelligent, quiet adolescent who had spent most of her childhood with an elderly aunt or on her own outside, Lady Bird preferred the company of books and trees to people. And Effie had taught her a lot of things, but what she didn't 
teacher was how to dress, current fashion. It wasn't important to Effie, so she didn't make it important or even teach it to Lady Bird. While her father had a lot of money, Lady Bird didn't really dress like it. So coming into a bigger town and going to school with all these girls, she had to adapt and adapt fast. She had her first boyfriend, and he took her to dances that required party dresses, not knickers. And she also made some girlfriends who kind of helped her, at best, blend in. And every summer, she would go to Alabama. She drove herself there for the first time at 14. Yes, there were incidents along the way. She ran out of money in Mississippi, and Daddy had to wire her some more. But 14. Imagine your 14-year-old driving two states away. When she was up and driving at 14, TJ got her own car, a Chevy Coupe, which sounds really fancy, but I looked it up and think like a city cousin to a Tin Lizzie car. We're still in the 1920s here. But with this mobility, she could drive herself back and forth to school. So Effie and Lady Bird moved back to the brick house and Lady Bird attended high school in Marshall. This was one of the few times that she did try to get people not to call her Lady Bird. She thought, well, let's just go by Bird, B-Y-R-D. How cute is that? But it never actually stuck. There were two versions of young Lady Bird. There was the independent adventuress who had gone on the airplane ride and went through the bayous on a canoe by herself and dreamed about traveling the whole world. And then there was the quiet Lady Bird, a quiet girl who was teased for her clothes. She was teased for her nose. She was teased so much that she really wanted to get a nose job. But whatever version of Lady Bird that she was being at the time, both of them were great students. Uh, she took after her mother and took as few home ec classes as possible, although she excelled in physics, law, geometry, Latin. And in her senior year, she let her grades slip because she didn't want to become valedictorian or salutatorian. She wanted one of her friends, Emma Bowinger, to have it. She'd worked hard. Plus, Lady Bird didn't want to do any speeches in public. In 1928, 15-year-old Lady Bird Taylor graduated Marshall High School. She decided that summer to take some summer school classes at the University of Alabama, thinking that that's where she might want to go to school. But at the end of the summer, TJ asked her to come back. He thought she was a little too young for college. She really wanted to go away to school. So they negotiated for an all-girls junior college, St. Mary's Episcopal School for Girls in Dallas. Lady Bird's ulterior motive was to get started on her education. TJ's motive was that maybe she would find herself a husband in Dallas. Just like she had gone to Alabama, Lady Berg went off to Dallas. She drove herself in her new Buick that TJ had given her. She enrolled herself at St. Mary's and got her first roommate named Helen Bird. How perfect. At St. Mary's School, which closed in the 1930s, it was really a good place for her. She really could... I'm so sorry about all the bird puns. She really could spread her wings there. Lady Bird kind of came out of her shy shell. She appeared in plays. She studied French. And she had an active social life. All the girls would get together and do things. It was very liberating. They'd sing chants like, root-a-toot-toot, root-a-toot-toot. We are the girls from the Institute. We don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go with boys who do. Oh, God, I love that. But it was a junior college. It was just two years. She had to think ahead. She had heard that University of Texas at Austin, which was 200 miles away from Dallas, Texas is a very big state. Um, she had heard that it might be a good fit for her. So 
independent girl she is. She's 17. I never could have done this at 17. She booked her own flight and went alone to Austin. 17! When the plane landed, she looked out the window and she saw this huge field of the state flower of Texas, the Texas blue bonnet. And she said, it was as though the gates of the world flung open for me. I felt in love with life itself. Oh my gosh, that's definitely where you got to go to college, right? Her high school friend who she had let become valedictorian, she had an older sister named Jean, and Jean had gone to University of Texas and agreed to meet Lady Bird at the airport and show her around. Jean was a college graduate. She was stylish and pretty, and Lady Bird in high school and in her first couple years of college hadn't really upped her fashion game very much. Her dresses were all comfortable. Her clothing was very comfortable. Some people might call it frumpy. I wouldn't be one of them because I would probably wear everything in her closet. She was quite a contrast to Jean, but Jean was so excited to see her and she really showed off showed off Austin and showed off the University of Texas best light possible and Ladybird wanted to go. She wanted to go so badly. Jean actually got involved. She knew TJ. She told TJ she would take good care of Ladybird in Austin in the big city and TJ agreed like she needed taking care of. That's so cute. So 17-year-old Lady Bird Taylor enrolled herself at the University of Texas at Austin. She paid the $25 a year tuition, the $10 for the campus pass, the $7 to use the library. In the fall of 1930, joined 6,600 other students at the school. Now, even with inflation, that tuition is only about $614 in today money. Now, the University of Texas at Austin, they've gone up from those 6,000 students to nearly 40,000 students, and now the tuition has gone up to $26,000 a year. So Lady Bird Taylor is off to college. She's ready to get her education and start on this next adventure in life. So Lady Bird is settling in at the University of Texas, Austin. Unlike a lot of students, she decided right away not to live on campus. She moved into a boarding house and shared a room and a bed with a cute blonde daughter of a single mom from San Antonio, Texas, Cecile Harrison. Cecile and Ladybird got along right away, although they were very different. Cecile scrimped for new clothes. Even though she had her own Neiman Marcus card, Ladybird wore Aunt Effie's hand-me-down coats and cardigans. Uh, She always wore skirts and comfortable shoes. Someone said of her that she looked like she was thrown together, verging on tacky, which in my head brings up, you know, early stages Madonna, but it was a lot more housewifey, I think, than Madonna ever, ever, ever was. Here's the thing. Lady Bird wanted to be known for her personality and her intellect not for what she was wearing. She thought those should shine through. What she was wearing never mattered to her, and it certainly wasn't going to matter to her now. Cecile was there to have fun, maybe get her MRS degree, while Lady Bird was a serious student and really was there for an education. She did have a social life. She and Cecile had some friends. Lady Bird drove her Buick wherever they needed to go, and she threw candy wrappers in the back seat. She enjoyed her social life, but it didn't rule her schedule at all. 
She studied journalism and history. She wrote for the school paper. She was the publicity manager for the women's sports programs. And she was president of the UT Women's Intramural Sports Association. Now, hearing all this, it's hard to remember. This was during the Depression, but she never financially suffered. And even when Prohibition ended, it only meant that she could drink in public. She had been sipping homemade whiskey since her days in Karnak. She loved college, but it was only three short years, and that was with an extra year to get an extra degree. She graduated at 20 in 1934 with a dual major, a degree in history and a degree in journalism. And she also had a, she'd also achieved a teaching certificate for second grade. She really wanted to be a journalist. She wanted to be a reporter, but her backup plan was to be a teacher. Right after graduation, she and Cecile took a senior trip. They went to the East Coast. They were going to go to New York and to Washington. And her old friend, Jean, remember, had met her at the plane. She said, hey, I met this guy from Texas. I know him. He lives in Washington. You should look him up. You should meet him. His name is Lyndon Johnson. Jean had told her about this guy. He was living in a basement with 12 other guys. He was some government lackey. He wasn't her type. She was in Washington to meet up with another fellow who was a new lawyer, and she was going to try and see if she could get a job at the Washington Post. Lady Bird and Cecile took a boat from Galveston to New York. Apparently, Lady Bird was not an easy sailor. It was a lot of seasickness, but once they got to New York, it was great. They had a nice hotel near Times Square. They had theater tickets. She had plenty of cash, and she had an adventure spirit. She went out and loved New York City. Then they were on the train, and they went to Washington. And Washington was also great. Her new fellow showed her all the sights. He took her to all the monuments, to the Capitol, to the White House. He took her to the Cotton Club. The Cotton Club, isn't that New York? There were several cotton clubs all over the United States at the time, all the same. They were black entertainers, but not black patrons. Lady Bird was having so much fun. She had no time, and more importantly, she had no inclination to go meet this Johnson fellow. They toured around for a few weeks, and then she was back in Austin and stopped by the office where Jean worked to talk to her about something. While she was there, this tall, dark-headed fellow came in to pick up his date, who also worked in Jean's office. When he saw Jean and Ladybird, he asked them to join him and his date. That's quite a date. So they did. This gentleman, his name was Lyndon Johnson, and he took all three women for drinks. Lady Bird was instantly attracted to him. He was very tall, 6'4". She was about 5'5". And he just had this X factor, this presence that she found quite irresistible, quite captivating. He was outgoing. He was very charming. He possessed a lot of characteristics that she didn't. And by the end of drinks... He asked Ladybird to meet him for breakfast, and she said yes. So let's just unpack that for one second. He's on a date with somebody else, invites two other women. So he's on a date with three people. And while on this date, he makes a breakfast date with one of the women that he had picked up in the office. How about that? And that should tell you everything you need to know about Lyndon Johnson as a dating man. But he was also 26. He had been born in a small ranch farmhouse in Stonewall, Texas, which is just north of San Antonio, west of Austin, and about five hours south and west of where Lady Bird grew up. Did I happen to mention Texas is a very large state? Lyndon was the first of five children of Sam and Rebecca Johnson. Sam was a farmer and a state legislator. 
manager, but both positions, they did very little to put food on the table. Rebecca, however, was college educated. She had gone to Baylor University. She had worked in journalism, and she did not want a poor future for her son. So she pushed him. She pushed him in his education far more than Lyndon would push himself. When he graduated high school, he took summer classes at Southwest Texas State Teacher College, but apparently they didn't push hard enough, even though he had taken summer classes was the president of his six-member high school class. He wasn't accepted the first time around. So Lyndon went off on his own, and he roamed around for a while, basically disappointing his mother. He worked odd jobs. He was drinking. He got arrested. And then, like a lot of young men, for some reason, he decided it was time to clean up his act. He reapplied and got accepted to Southwest Texas State Teacher College, which is now Texas State University, to pursue a career as a teacher. When he graduated, he taught underprivileged students. When he graduated, he taught at a underprivileged high school with a very heavy Mexican enrollment. He taught public speaking and debate. But his side hustle was politics, just like his dad. And he thought that politics were going to give him a better promise for a future than education ever would. In 1931, Lyndon had moved to Washington to become an aide for Texas Congressman Richard Clayburg. And that's the job he had when he met Lady Bird Taylor for breakfast at the Driscoll Hotel in Austin in late August 1934. Ladyburg didn't have any real concrete plans after graduation. If she had been able to get a job at the Washington Post, she would have gone there. But she had agreed with her father to head back to Karnak and oversee a remodel of the brick house. That August morning that Lady Bird was supposed to be meeting Lyndon at the Driscoll Hotel, she also had a meeting with an architect to talk about the project at the brick house. She could see Lyndon sitting in the restaurant waiting for her. She had a meeting with an architect about plans to oversee the brick house project. So she kind of skirted around in the corners and got by without Lyndon seeing her and took her meeting. And she did contemplate standing him up. I mean, she had just met this guy. But Lyndon Johnson physically stopped her. He stood right in front of her. So she sat down to have breakfast with him. He charmed her. He was name-dropping. President Roosevelt this. He was telling her about his salary. I make $4,000 a year, which is about $76,000 now. He told her how he wanted to make even more money. He was ambitious because he was also supporting his family in Texas. He told her he also wanted to help the poor. For some reason, and it's been so long since I had a first date, I don't remember, but he shared his dating resume, which, shock of shockers, included a lot of daughters of very wealthy men. But Lady Bird's heart was already in the game. That breakfast, it led to a drive in a borrowed convertible. And on that drive, he had an offhand marriage proposal. She thought he was not. Maybe he was. Or maybe he just knew his type. Lyndon told Lady Bird that she reminded him of his mother. Maybe I'm just really cynical, and I'm sure he was attracted to her. A really cynical part of me wonders if... Lady Bird just didn't remind him of a daughter of a very wealthy man, a woman who would a woman who would idolize him and indulge all of his whims, regardless of the reasons. <laughs> the date continued. It was kind of like more of his resume, all of his connections. He took her hither and yon to meet up with all these people that he knew. And they even stayed in a hotel that night. Okay, they did have separate rooms. 
Ladybird had to get up to Karnak to work on the Brickhouse project. So the marathon date was extended even longer. Lyndon could drive her up to Karnak, meet Papa, stop there for the night on his way back to Washington. And that's exactly what they did. Papa TJ was nicer to Lyndon than his own father-in-law. Because after dinner, Papa TJ took Ladybird aside and said, You've been bringing home a lot of boys. This one looks like a man. Ooh. And I'm not sure how much room Papa had to be comparing the ages of someone, but he was 60, and he was dating a girl named Ruth Scoggins, who was three years younger than Lady Bird. Yikes. She was going to be the third and last Mrs. Thomas Jefferson Taylor. The seemingly never-ending date finally did end after Lyndon had stayed over at the Brick House. His parting gift to Lady Bird was a book, Nazism, An Assault on Civilization. It was a compilation of essays by Germans who witnessed the rise of the Nazi party. After she had read it, she returned it with a book recommendation of her own, Candide by Voltaire, which he did not read. And the writing campaign began between Karnak, Texas, and Washington, D.C. Honestly, reading these, they sound like red flags to me. They have not been dating very long. He was scolding her for not writing back faster. He did more name-dropping. He was giving her a real hard sell on his qualities and what her future would look like with him. She would write him back. He would say that those letters lacked enthusiasm and she was being aloof. He would send her more books, library books, that she would have to return. His letters are basically a hard sell on Lyndon Johnson. Her letters are about the flora and the fauna and the weather, about how she had taken a couple black children to the fair. It was updates about all the improvements she was making to the brick house. But on both of their sides, the steam of the romance letters started to heat up, and he kept up with the marriage talk the whole time. This correspondence... This is only going on for three months when he showed up on November 16th, 1934 at the Brick House to ask for her hand in marriage. She accepted. TJ gave his blessing. Effie wanted her to wait, but no. The very next day, November 17th, 1934, in a private ceremony with a $2.50 ring that he had picked up at Sears, in Ladybird's words, they committed matrimony. After a quick honeymoon in Mexico, Lady Bird moved from the brick house in Karnak to Lyndon's rented hotel room in Washington. After work, he'd bring people back so they could continue working, and she'd have to hide under the covers so that they didn't see her in her sleep clothes. Eventually, a few months later, they moved into an apartment where Lady Bird now had to learn how to be a housewife. That's right. She was raised just like her mother, Minnie, and neither one of them were big on housewife duties. She knew nothing, although she was very good at the finances, which she immediately took over and she loved to do. But the rest, the rest was tough. It was cleaning and cooking, but Lyndon never kept a regular schedule. It was like he would just show up and he might be by himself, but he might have three other guys with him. She never knew who was going to be coming for dinner and when. She was really becoming not just a housewife, but a subgenre, a political wife. And he was upping his game. They were able to move back to Texas. Lyndon used his connections to get in a position as a Texas administrator for the National Youth Administration. It was one of President Roosevelt's New Deal programs to help guide the country back from the Depression. The program provided federal assistance to Americans between the ages of 16 and 25 in job training and helping them find employment. 
For a couple years, Lady Bird perfected her political wife and housewife duties in Austin. Unfortunately, one of the things she had to learn how to deal with was Johnson's affairs. He had a very long-term one that began very early in their marriage with a leggy bond named Alice Glass. Lady Bird knew about the relationship, and instead of complaining or walking out, her choice was to improve herself, to make her more attractive to her husband. She read more books. She learned more political history, more about art, things that he was interested in. She lost weight. She could see how Alice dressed, so she started to dress more fashionably. She wore more makeup. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. I do not recommend this. Please, young ladies, Don't change for him. Please, please, please. Lady Bird was right in college. They should love you for who you are, your personality, and your intellect, not what you're wearing or how much you weigh. Gosh, there's so many red flags here. Lyndon and Alice actually didn't end the affair. It went on for a very long time. Alice even got her husband to contribute to Lyndon's political campaigns. Lyndon had decided to run for a congressional seat, which was available in Texas. So in addition to Alice Glass's husband's money, Lady Bird got involved. She contributed $10,000 of her inheritance from her mom towards Lyndon's first campaign. And that was a victory. It landed them both back in Washington. A couple years later, Lyndon launched another campaign for Senate. It would be the only one he would ever lose in his career. But he still had his congressional job. So it wasn't like he had lost his work. He just continued to be a congressman. And then the U.S. entered World War II and Lyndon Johnson became a Navy Reserve officer. Lyndon headed off to the South Pacific, but he still had a congressional office to run. And Lady Bird did her part. She took over and she began to run that office. She didn't know everything about running it. It was really fast on the job training, but she was very intelligent, very organized, very determined. She had learned a lot about politics. And from all accounts, she did a great job. She said that she had learned more in that short time that she ran his office than she had in all of college. In addition to running his Washington office, she was also driving back and forth to Texas, and she really did all the duties of a congressional substitute. And if that wasn't enough, she bought their first house, a two-story colonial in Washington, which was across the street from J. Edgar Hoover, and she got Lyndon on the ballot so that he could hold his congressional seat. And it was during this time that Lady Bird and Zephyr Wright's stories blend. It was on all those trips back and forth to Texas that she hired Zephyr to come on and take away all those housewife duties that Lady Bird just really didn't care to do. As soon as Lyndon was called back to Washington, the couple began to think about business opportunities. There had been an investigation into Lyndon's possibly using his office to enhance the businesses of his friends. Gee, that doesn't sound like politics at all, does it? But it really made him wonder, you know, what's the future? How long can he ride the political train? So they needed a plan B. Lady Bird's plan A at this point was to be a mom. But she'd had three miscarriages in the first five years of their marriage. So maybe motherhood wasn't in the cards for her. But if she couldn't raise children, maybe she could raise a business. She had already delegated all of her domestic responsibilities. She felt like she had to do something. But what was that? Now, her first dream had been to be a journalist. She didn't think she could do that at this point, especially as a congressman's wife. But maybe something in the media, 
newspapers, something. She cast her net around Texas to see if there was any newspapers, small town papers that were for sale. Any attempts that she made to buy one kind of fizzled out. But how about radio? KTBC, a small radio station in Austin, Texas, was losing money and had gone on the market. Now, Lady Bird, as I said earlier, was really great with money. She was, she did all the family finances, and she also had money. She had taken her inheritance that she had got from her mother, as well as some that she had got from her mother's Alabama relatives, including some land in Alabama, that she turned into a timber farm. So she was running a tinder farm in addition to all this other work she was doing. When she got her eye on KTBC, she got her checkbook. And for $17,500, she put her name on an FCC application and got herself in the offices and reorganized the business item by item and turn the station around. When she bought KTBC, the radio station was struggling, but a lot of that struggle had to do with a web of really sticky red tape, and that was all part of the FCC. With Lady Bird's purchase, that tape was mysteriously cut, question mark, and she was able, within the first six months, to turn a $600 a month loss into a whopping $18 a month profit. But it was a start. And using her magic FCC powers, (laughs) she was able to increase the station's power to reach more counties. She was able to sign on as a CBS affiliate radio station. So 24 hours a day, they were broadcasting. And because of this growth, it brought all the advertisers to the yard and I can't help but wonder if their advertisers thought that, hey, maybe I can get some political favors from Johnson, too. So it was Lady's Bird Station. She managed it. She had bought it. But it was really Johnson Teamwork that made it. The name of the company is LBJ Holdings. LBJ, not just Lady Bird Johnson, but Lyndon Baines Johnson. They had the same initials. They bought six other radio stations and a TV station. And they all turned a profit. They were so profitable that Lady Bird is considered the first first lady to become a millionaire on her own before her husband took office. And LBJ Holdings added something even more valuable than a media empire. On March 19, 1944, 32-year-old Lady Bird Johnson gave birth to their first child, a girl. Lyndon wanted to name the baby after Lady Bird. Lady Bird wasn't that keen on having a child named after her, but in a very clever move, they named the baby Linda Bird Johnson and also LBJ. Perfect. The following year, Lady Bird did have another miscarriage. But two years after that, on July 2nd, 1947, now 35, she gave birth to their second and last daughter, who they named Lucy Baines Johnson, named after Lyndon's sister Lucia. And the four-member LBJ-initialed family was complete. As their family was growing, their property holdings were also growing. The following year, the Johnsons bought a large cattle ranch from Lyndon's aunt. It was the place where Lyndon had been born in Stonewall, Texas. It was a 438-acre working cattle ranch along the Perdinalis River in the Texas Hill Country. Johnson had bought the property, (laughs) told Lady Bird, although she had never seen it, so he took her out to it and she stared at this house. It was just falling down. There was a bat infestation and she cried, how could you do this to me? But what had he really done for her? 
Well, he gave her her first large-scale environmental beautification project. The very first thing she did to the property was spread 75 pounds of blue bonnet seeds on each side of the Pertinalis River on their property. Then she began refurbishing the house. Her plan was to make it a gathering spot for their friends and political acquaintances, and that's exactly what she did. The girls went back and forth with Lady Bird from Washington to Texas while the renovations were going on, and Lucy actually had her only memory of her mother cooking her anything just for her when she was five, and they were at the ranch, and they had been caught in a flood. Lady Bird had made her tomato soup and some peanut butter on saltine crackers. Although the power was out, Lady Bird read her stories while they waited to be rescued, which they were by a guy that Lyndon had sent out on a horseback so that he could bring them back to safety. So Lady Bird is rehabbing the house. She's managing the radio station. She's raising the girls between Washington and Texas. She also hit the campaign trail hard. Lyndon's next career goal was Senate, and there was a Senate seat open in Texas. Lady Bird organized women to work the phones. She helped in the strategy meetings. She traveled the state, and she would go from one town to another and buy only five gallons of gas for her car because it gave her an excuse to spend some money in these towns and to meet with people and to talk about her husband. And then she'd drive on to the next town. Once, she rolled her car, and she managed to get herself scratched and bruised to a meeting where she had to make a speech as part of the campaign. And that part, that was just for the primary, which Linda did win. And even severe kidney stones that required the Johnsons to go to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota didn't slow him down. Lyndon Johnson won by a large margin, earning him the name Landslide Lyndon. Two years later, now 45-year-old Senator Johnson became the youngest Senate Majority Leader the United States had ever had. Shortly after Lyndon had become Senate Majority Leader in July of 1955, on Lucy's eighth birthday, Lyndon's life of steak and potatoes, of 60 cigarettes a day, no sleep, of running himself really hard, of lots of stress, and not a lot of exercise, resulted in a heart attack during a bro weekend he was on. When Lady Bird heard, of course, she raced to the hospital, and she quickly learned the severity of this heart attack. So she moved into the hospital for the next six weeks. And this is a good illustration that Lyndon always came first. She even told her daughters that. She told them that his position, that being his daughters and living the life that they did, it was a privilege and it came with a cost. Part of that cost was that she always put him first. And part of that cost also is what I would consider verbal abuse. But he took out all of his frustrations on Lady Bird. He was put on a very strict diet immediately, of course. He was missing work. All these things were going to make him extraordinarily cranky and he really took it out on Ladybird, all of those frustrations, being hospitalized, of not being able to have these foods that he loved, of quitting smoking. And she just took it. She said that that's what being a wife was. And Lyndon did call her always his wonderful wife. She stayed with him. She stayed with him in the hospital. She wore these long, silky robes and had her hair and makeup done so that as soon as he opened his eyes, she could be by his side looking fresh and beautiful. Lyndon Johnson had 
already in his life shown a history of depressions, and the heart attack triggered yet another episode. She stayed with him in the hospital for those entire six weeks. They headed back down to Stonewall to the ranch for him to finish recuperating. As if Lady Bird didn't already have enough on her plate. Let's see, a recuperating senator husband, two kids, a growing empire, dual state residences. As if she didn't have enough on her plate, there was some family drama on her side of the family. She realized that Papa TJ's estate was going to need protecting from his third wife, Ruth. She set up a living trust for him, This and this would help lower uh, the estate taxes for his heirs when he eventually passed. Eventually, Lyndon lost the weight, quit smoking, got healthy, and they moved back to Washington. Lady Bird assumed her role as a Senate wife. All these women met at each other's houses. It was kind of like a sorority. And of course, it included a wife of a young senator from Massachusetts, Jackie Kennedy. But Lyndon thought that their Washington time may have been limited. He told her to do anything in Washington that she wanted to do because he wasn't running for office again. But Lady Bird didn't believe him. In 1960, she was proven right. Before the Democratic Party's convention for the presidential election, Lyndon casually tossed his hat into the ring for president. Too little, too late. And that young senator from Massachusetts, John Kennedy, ended up with twice the convention delegates than Lyndon did. John Kennedy was the candidate. Lyndon Johnson was not. Their daughter, Linda, the oldest, she was 14 and she was very stoic. But Lucy? Lucy was 13. She was very dramatic. She dressed herself up in black that night and acted dramatically crushed, saying, My father has lost and I'm in mourning. Cute. Lucy actually once said, Every politician ought to be born a foundling and remain a bachelor. She just thought family made it too complicated and people's feelings were hurt. And she was one of those people. As far as Lady Bird's reaction to him not winning the presidential candidacy, she did shed a few tears. But a couple days later, that presidential candidate, John Kennedy, called up the House. Lady Bird was trying to decide if it was a wake-up, Linden-worthy call. You know, he was taking a nap. He needed his rest. Should she wake him up? But Kennedy said, you know what? I'm going to be right over. So he was over in an hour, an hour of, Linden, wake up. John Kennedy's on his way over. Scramble. Let's get the house cleaned up. Zephyr, get some snacks. Kennedy and Johnson had a meeting at the Johnson's house. It didn't lead to an offer of a job. Seems like Kennedy was just waiting for Johnson to volunteer as vice president. And Lyndon was just waiting to be asked. They parted after that meeting, but it didn't take long. Just a few hours later, the call came. Lyndon Johnson accepted John Kennedy's offer of vice presidency on his ticket. But there wasn't jubilation. Lady Bird and Lyndon both thought that Lyndon was more qualified. He'd been in the job longer, and now he, they just felt like he was the runner-up. At this point, the Johnsons had been married for 26 years. Lady Bird was 47. She had been a political wife for more than half of her life, and she knew what to do. She knew how to hit the campaign trail. She traveled over 35,000 miles on that presidential campaign trail. She was instrumental in gaining support in Texas for the young Catholic from Massachusetts who wasn't very popular down south. She had what she called flying tea parties to tour the states, and she Ethel and Eunice Kennedy, if you remember back to our Jackie Kennedy episode, Jackie was pregnant during Jack's campaign for president, so she couldn't travel on the campaign trail. And Ethel and her sister-in-law Eunice were her surrogates. Lady Bird can't just focus on one thing. 
In October of 1960, her father's health spiraled and he was admitted to the hospital. At the same time, his wife, Ruth, who was, remember, just two years younger than Lady Bird, was also admitted to the same hospital. She had become addicted to prescription medication. But on October 22nd, Papa TJ died. And thus began an even bigger legal battle with Ruth. Apparently, she hadn't tied up all the loose ends a few years back, getting her father's estate ready, because the house was a negotiating point. Lady Bird wanted the house. It was historic. It was part of her childhood. She loved it there. But Ruth, she wasn't ready to give it up. Lady Bird offered her buckets of money, but Ruth just refused. And from then out, Lady Bird wasn't allowed back on the property. She had to watch the house deteriorate from the road. Just two weeks after her father died, she was back on the campaign trail. The Democratic ticket, led by a Yankee, a young Yankee at that, was not very popular in Republican Texas. And as she's on the campaign trail, Lady Bird Johnson, in front of her own people, Texas women, they are screaming at her. Let's ground Lady Bird. She was spit on. Oh, my God. That election had Kennedy and Johnson Democrats running on a very progressive platform, while the Republican current Vice President Richard Nixon and his running mate, who was a former Massachusetts senator who had lost his seat to Kennedy in 1952, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., Nixon and Lodge were working on a platform that basically said, Eisenhower's been doing a great job. Let's just continue the work like he's been doing. As far as this election goes, Landslide Linden didn't earn his nickname. It wasn't a landslide. But the Democrats eked out a lead in one of the closest presidential elections in history. Lyndon Johnson was now vice president of the United States. Now there's a house for the vice president's family, but then there was no designated residence. They knew, given their style of entertaining, blended with politicking, networking, things that they did at their house, they knew since Lyndon was now on an even bigger stage that they were going to need an even bigger house. And they found that. They bought a, a large property called the Elms, and when they purchased it, they made sure that there was an addendum to the contract that absolved them from maintaining a neighborhood provision that they could not sell the house to people of color, to Jewish people, or to Muslims. Talk about your bad HOA rules. But the Johnson said, it's not constitutional, it's illegal, and we are not sticking to that. Johnson had been a senator for a very long time, and he had acquired quite a lot of power. But as vice president, he sort of had some of that clipped from him. And while he kind of spiraled into a little bit of a depression, Lady Bird's responsibilities were amped up even further than they were when she was with the Senate ladies. Because her role now, in addition to everything that she already had on her plate, was to show up at appearances where Jackie didn't want to go. That first year, Lady Bird Johnson went to 50 events that Jackie Kennedy couldn't or wouldn't go to. But the Johnsons did get to travel extensively. Lady Bird finally got her years of travel, the travel that she had dreamed of when she was on that airplane in Michigan when she was 11. She was able to do it. They traveled to Africa and Asia, to Europe, to the Middle East. In 1963, she was picking lingonberries on the forest of Sweden. And two months later, 
She was back in Texas. The president and the vice president were in Dallas. After their time in Dallas, the group was going to go to the Johnson's Ranch in Stonewall, Texas. So Lady Bird, while she's in Dallas, she's making plans. She's calling the house to make sure everything's set, all the food, all the staff, everything is set. Make sure that the Kennedys are brought in through the front door, not the kitchen door. And are the dogs ready to show Mrs. Kennedy how they herd sheep? This is what she was working on in Dallas. She got into a car for a motorcade. Her and Lyndon were in the car behind President Kennedy, Jackie, Texas Governor John Connolly, and his wife, Nellie, who were longtime friends of the Johnsons. They were on their motorcade in Dallas, and we all know what happened. Shots rang out. At first, Lady Bird thought they were firecrackers, but the Secret Service threw themselves on Lyndon and Lady Bird, knocking them to the floor of the car, and their car just raced off towards the hospital. They didn't know what had happened, but Lady Bird knew it was serious. Once they got to the hospital, they were on their way to a secure room with Secret Service, and Lady Bird caught sight of Jackie still in the car that they were driving. There was blood everywhere, and Jackie was still laying over her husband's body. It only took minutes before the White House staff came in to tell them that the president was dead. Lyndon told Lady Bird immediately, go find Jackie and Nellie Connolly. John Connolly had been shot as well. Lady Bird said that Lyndon was a good man to have in a tough spot. So Lady Bird went off and found the women. She hugged them. She hugged Jackie and she said, God help us all. A few hours later on Air Force One, Jackie Kennedy standing to Lyndon Johnson's left, Lady Bird standing to his right, 24 other people in the cabin of the plane. At 2.25 p.m., Judge Sarah T. Hughes became the first woman to swear in a U.S. president. Lyndon kissed Lady Bird's forehead, and he kissed Jackie's cheek, and Jackie went to sit in the back of the plane, and Lady Bird went to her. Did Jackie need something else to wear, maybe? Maybe some hose that weren't ripped? Jackie just looked at her and said, no, I want them to see what they've done to Jack. Lady Bird tried to comfort Jackie, although in the back of her mind, she couldn't help but wonder how the Johnsons, how Texas itself would be seen after this event. That's how deep politics were in her at this point in her life. But what she said was, oh, Mrs. Kennedy, you know we never even wanted to be vice president. And now, dear God, it's come to this. Now, that's a direct quote from her. You know we never even wanted to be vice president. As to that moment when later when she was collecting her thoughts, she told a friend, I feel as if I am suddenly on a stage for a part I never rehearsed. That very first day, Lady Bird Johnson began her diary. It would become a daily record of her life as First Lady. The first line she wrote in it, it all began so beautifully. Referring, of course, to the beginning of the day, not to how it ended up. Eventually, her diary would reach 1.75 million words. Of course, the Johnsons had to move into the White House, but they also wanted to give Jackie and her kids as much time as they needed. Lady Bird had to get their house on the market anyway. She had only planned to bring three rooms of furniture. Everything else was going to be stored. And she instructed her lawyer to sell the house as quickly as possible to whoever would pay for that. It turned out that person was an investor. His name was Luther B. Smith. He just turned right around and sold that house and that neighborhood to the government of Algeria for their ambassador. Yes, people of color and Muslims. I kind of love that part. 
As First Lady, Lady Burt quickly became one of Lyndon's most trusted advisors. Her role was one that nobody else could fill. No politician could do what she did. She knew when he felt overwhelmed and when he felt lost. She knew how to calm him down. She knew how to read his moods. She even knew how to critique his presentations and his, his speeches and his television appearances. She could tell him, you were a little breathless, too much looking down, you were too fast. That speech, that was a good B+. But she'd had a lifetime of training with her father, whose personality was very much like Lyndon Johnson's, and all her years with Lyndon Johnson. I should probably tell you, we carried on quite a bit during the Zephyr Wright podcast about the personality of Lyndon Johnson. We decided that there was a good Lyndon and a bad Lyndon. The good Lyndon was champion for civil rights, and good Johnson had launched a war on poverty. And he could be kind and funny. And Bad Johnson? Bad Johnson did things like pulling out his member during meetings to show off his Johnson. And he swore and yelled at people. He peed in front of a lot of people. He was a very crass man and exactly the opposite of Good Johnson. While Lady Bird felt it was necessary for her to kind of make over herself, Lyndon didn't think he had needed it, and his personality pretty much remained the same as the years went by. And if anything, he just got more intense as he got more political power. When Lyndon Johnson first went into the Oval Office, he thought, one year, done. But the very next year, 1964, was an election year. He kind of thought, maybe I should run. I've always wanted to be president. Lady Bird. Bird, he called her. Bird, what do you think? So Lady Bird sat down and she wrote him a nine-page list of reasons why he should run for president, including what I think would probably the mo- be the most personal one. She didn't want to be his scapegoat if he got frustrated because he didn't run. Okay, he's going to run for president. But he also was president. He had a job to do. He was trying to push through civil rights legislation that Jack Kennedy had began. And he did very quickly. Not even eight months after he took office, on July 2nd, 1964, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was signed. And Lady Bird Johnson was in the front row. She was the only woman present. And she was also front and center on the campaign trail. She knew that she was a link between the Democrats in Washington and the Southern Democrats, the Dixiecrats. We talked about this in the Zephyr Wright episode and I believe in the Fannie Lou Hamer episode. These were traditional Democrats in the South who did not support civil rights. They supported segregation and voter suppression. They didn't campaign against lynchings. So while they called themselves Democrats, they were not uh, working towards a Democratic platform. But Lady Bird Johnson was one of them. She was from the South. She was a Texas woman who spent half of her time in Alabama. She'd even grown up in a house that was built by slave labor. But she was no Dixiecrat. So despite warnings that it wasn't safe for her, and with all the heckling of 1960, all the spitting still ringing in her ears, she set off on a whistle-stop tour. The Ladybird Special, she called the train. It was a four-day, eight-state, 1,600-mile tour of the South. Her mission was to convince those Southerners that the Civil War had ended a long time ago, that it was time to let go of all that racist behavior, let go of segregation, promote voting rights, abolish lynching. 
At every single stop she made, she was greeted by crowds, of course, but she was the face of the South to a lot of these people, even the people that were holding signs that said Blackbird on them. Lyndon Johnson is a communist. Johnson is a N-word lover. But Lady Bird would take the podium and she'd say in her quiet voice with a Southern drawl, you may not agree with what I have to say, but at least you'll understand the way I say it. She was one of them. With 150 members of the press on the train with her, she gave 47 speeches to an estimated 500,000 people, all of them who listened respectfully. She touched more soon-to-be former Dixiecrat hearts than anyone could who were shouting at people, who were scolding. She changed hearts by speaking their language and explaining things to them in a language and a way that they understood. That November, Landslide Linden was back. He won with 61% of the popular vote. When President Johnson was inaugurated on January 20th, 1965, with pomp and tradition properly done and a lot of security, yes, she was just continuing the same job she'd been doing for the last year. But that first year, she had been mourning and moving and campaigning. This time, the Johnsons didn't have a hand-me-down presidency. President Johnson had won in his own right. And she, now as the first lady in her own right, got busy with the programs that were important to her. Now, she had turned to Jackie for advice on tableware and China. Uh, she had continued Jackie's preservation efforts in the White House. But Lady Bird also gave herself a crash course on first lady history. She had read biographies. She toured their homes. She visited their gowns at the Smithsonian. She decided that Eleanor Roosevelt was her role model first lady. But Lady Bird Johnson's primary initiative as first lady was unique to her, conservation and beautification. And all those trips from Washington to Texas and back all around Texas, all around the United States, she'd driven all over the place. And she had seen junkyard along the side of the road, litter along the side of the road, billboard after billboard. It was just an eyesore. What she wasn't seeing was native wildflowers and native plants and pretty landscaping. She didn't feel that the national highways of this country properly represented the beauty that this country has to offer. And she decided that that was going to be her program. But it wasn't just to make things pretty. She sent these threats are all interwoven. Recreation, pollution, mental health, crime rate, rapid transit, the war on poverty, parks, national, state and local parks. It's hard to hitch the conversation into one straight line because everything leads to something else. And she thought conservation and beautification was the way to tackle all the ills of the country. She said, Ugliness is so grim. A little beauty, something that's lovely, can help create harmony, which will lessen tensions. Lady Bird started locally. She started in Washington, D.C. She organized community leaders and, through private funding, began to clean up parks and put flowers in the medians of roadways. Lady Bird got her hands dirty, literally, when she helped plant now, she didn't plant this many. She planted just enough for show to help plant some 2 million daffodil and tulip bulbs, some 83,000 flowering plants, 50,000 shrubs, 137,000 annuals, 25,000 trees. And this is just in Washington. Lady Bird Johnson created the Jacqueline Kennedy Garden and the Children's Garden on the White House lawn. 
After she had helped organize 100 projects that, again, were privately funded in Washington, D.C., she went national. Team Johnson started to work to pass the Highway Beautification Act, also known as Lady Bird's Bill. Johnson said, you know, I love that woman. And if she wants a Highway Beautification Act, by God, we're going to get it for her. Now, that meant doing a very fancy dance with the Outdoor Advertising Association of America. They went back and forth for quite a while. Uh, It did include some compensation for lost business. But in October of 1965, the Highway Beautification Act passed. Unfortunately, all that going back and forth had created a lot of loopholes about where billboards were to be zoned, what exceptions there were to the law. It made it very easy to manipulate, and several amendments to this law had been passed since 1965. For the kids of the 70s, this is when the Keep America Beautiful program began. You know, that campaign to stop litter bugs. It was a nationwide television media campaign. Now, you know, you're driving down the highway in the United States and you see those brown signs with neat little graphics that tell you the services that are available at the next exit. That was because of this program. Lady Bird starred in a television special, A Visit to Washington, with Mrs. Lyndon B. Johnson. That television special, it won an Emmy. Lady Bird was also actively involved in the Head Start program for non-Americans. That's an early childhood education program. It was part of Johnson's War on Poverty because it was geared towards low-income families. And Lady Bird herself felt that one of the best ways to end the cycle of poverty was education. Thanks to events that she held to drum up support for the volunteer Head Start program, she was able to muster 200,000 volunteers across the country for this program. I think that she felt that the good work that the Johnson administration was doing was just so overshadowed by all the horrible things that our country was going through. She actually even said it, maybe I could help focus public attention in a favorable way on aspects of Lyndon's poverty program. Now, were there people who thought she could use her platform differently? (laughs) Oh, yeah. There's a war going on in, in Vietnam. Race relations are terrible. Poverty is rampant. Eartha Kitt, actress, singer, confronted Lady Bird Johnson at a public event at the White House and yelled at her and said, you're not doing this the right way. Lady Bird calmly responded that she agreed the war in Vietnam was horrible. Racial conflict was horrible. But is that a reason for more violence? She thought, should it disrupt positive change in the United States? In 1965 and in 1966, on the Most Admired Women in America list, Jackie Kennedy was number one and Lady Bird Johnson was number two. But they were very different women. Jackie was sexy. She shopped outside the United States. She wore couture. She brought a French chef to the White House. Lady Bird Johnson? She was very frugal. She was an every woman in a lot of ways. She picked her White House china with wildflowers and made in the United States. <laughs> she even did her own event clothes shopping at department stores. That's right. Lady Bird Johnson was in the department stores hours before events buying dresses off the rack. Two totally different women. And what about the girls? Lucy, who was 14 when they moved into the White House, and Linda, who was 17, were also two very different people. Uh, Lucy, as I had said before, is very dramatic. Linda was very serious. Lyndon, being the great father he is, he called Lucy the pretty one. 
and said of Linda, she's smart enough to support herself. Ouch. Not only was Ladybird number two on the most admired list, but <laughs> the three worst dressed women in America at the time were Ladybird, Linda, and Lucy. Ouch. Linda handled it this way. She decided to do a makeover on herself. Kind of like Ladybird early in her marriage, she lost weight. They had her hair done differently. She did her makeup differently. She wore more stylish clothes. She had been engaged to be married and broke it off so that she could date actor George Hamilton while she was a, quote, first kid. And both girls got married while they lived in the White House. Lucy, dramatic Lucy, when she was in the White House, legally changed the spelling of her name. She was an L-U-C-Y and she legally became an L-U-C-I. How's that for radical? Even more rebellious? At 19, in a big, flashy Catholic wedding in Washington, D.C., she got married at 19 to Patrick Nugent. Eventually, they would have four kids. They divorced in 1979, and then she remarried, and she's still remarried to this day. I wonder if she's listening. Hi, Lucy. Thought you were great. Linda, thought you were great, too. Um, a year after Lucy got married, Linda got married in a quiet White House ceremony to Chuck Robb, who was a military man. Years later, he was going to become the governor of Virginia. It's 1965, and an election is looming. She knew that if Lyndon was going to run again, which he legally could, even though this was his second term in office, the first one was John Kennedy's. So that doesn't count against his two-term limit. So Lyndon Johnson could have run in 1968 as president again. But the entry in March of 1965 that Lady Bird made in her diary said, I'm counting the months until March 1968 when, like Truman, it will be possibly to say, I don't want this office, this responsibility any longer, even if you want me. So there you go. You know what side she stood on. This time she didn't write a nine-page list. She just wrote a little memo encouraging him not to run. And he listened. He announced in 1965 that he would not accept the nomination. In January of 1969, just like Jackie had done for Lady Bird, Lady Bird gave Pat Nixon a tour of the White House. The Johnsons left Washington. They returned to Texas, their ranch, which had been known as the Texas White House. And when they landed after leaving Washington, 500 Texans who they had known greeted them at the private airstrip at the ranch. They had a big party, and Lady Bird Johnson ended her first lady diaries saying this. I think it's from India's love lyrics. I seek to celebrate my glad release, the tents of silence, and the camp of peace. And yet, it's not quite the right exit line for me, because I have loved almost every day of these five years. But she had a more important job to do now, help Lyndon Johnson adjust to life away from politics. And for him, it seemed as if deciding to retire also meant retiring from not smoking and from eating right. Lady Bird was once again on Lyndon's case about what he was doing. The two of them worked together to plan and open the LBJ Library at the University of Texas in Austin. Lyndon Johnson let his hair grow out. I'll post a picture of his silver locks cascading down the back of his head in the show notes. As for Lady Bird, she edited that diary that she had kept. She got it down to 782 pages, which is only one-seventh of her original diary, and she had it published. Unfortunately, three years after retiring, Lyndon had another heart attack. 
He'd survive that one, but he did tell Ladybird that she's going to be the prettiest and richest widow in the state. Then on January 22, 1973, he died and is buried at the ranch. But Ladybird was only 61. She was extremely healthy. She had begun beautification projects in Texas. She had spearheaded an effort to make hiking and bike paths with flora, of course, along the Colorado River. And she had established, with prizes from her own money, the Texas Highway Beautification Awards. See, this is the products that she loves. She started them in the White House, and she kept them up in her, quote, retirement. She was on the National Park Service Advisory Board, and she was a trustee of the American Conservation Association and National Geographic Society. In 1977, then-President Gerald Ford awarded her the Medal of Freedom, and in 1988, President Reagan awarded her the Congressional Medal of Freedom. That same year, she collaborated on a book of wildflowers that was published. She and Jackie reignited their friendship, and they vacationed together on my favorite vacation place, Martha's Vineyard. She and Jackie vacationing, I can't even imagine. Lady Bird Johnson had rented a house on Upper Main Street in Vineyard Haven for 20 years of vacations. In an interview with her in 1989 in the Vineyard Gazette, which is the local newspaper from Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, Lady Bird Johnson said, an aroused citizenry can get almost anything done. So just so you know, Susan Vollenweider, Jackie Kennedy, Lady Bird Johnson, Emily Post. (laughs) Shall I go on? (laughs) Who doesn't belong on this list? I raise my hand. (laughs) She also hung out with another kind of sorority. That's former first ladies. There's all kinds of pictures of meetings that she had with Barbara, Laura Bush, Betty Ford, Rosalind Carter, Hillary Clinton. Uh, She even attended an ERA ratification rally in 1983 at, at the Lincoln Memorial with Betty Ford. Lady Bird Johnson was 71 at the time. Gosh, I love that. She and actress Helen Hayes established a National Wildflower Research Center in Austin to help preserve the native plants of the entire United States. She donated 60 acres and helped fund an endowment to keep it operating. And in 1998, six years after opening, the board renamed it to the Lady Bird Johnson Wildlife Center. She never really slowed down. Um, She lived both in Austin and on the ranch. She was actually known to greet buses of tourists at the ranch. As they came up, there's a video of her talking to people on the buses. She spent a lot of time with her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren. As the years passed, macular degeneration took her eyesight, and she had a couple strokes. She lived another five years after the last stroke and 34 years after Lyndon Johnson had passed away. But on July 11, 2007, Lady Bird Johnson died at her home. She was 94 years old. She's buried at the ranch, which was deeded to the National Park Service, and she's buried next to Linden. Her tombstone reads simply, A Gentle Heroine to Nature and Mankind. And that brings us to the end of my coverage of Lady Bird Johnson. Let me talk a little bit about media. Uh, Let's talk about books. Biography that I really liked was Lady Bird, a biography of Mrs. Johnson by Jan Jarbo Russell. This biography was written through interviews with Lady Bird, three years of them, until the author asked too many questions and wrote an article about Lyndon's infidelities. And then she was no longer allowed audiences with Mrs. Johnson. But this is the biography that she wrote after all those interviews. 
also Lady Bird Johnson and Oral History. These are compiled from oral interviews of Lady Bird Johnson by Michael Gillette. We'd use that book a lot for the Zephyr Wright podcast. And it, another source that we had used for both that episode and this one are interviews that are at the LBJ Presidential Library in Austin. Another book I really liked was Lady Bird and Linden, The Hidden Story of a Marriage That Made a President by Becky Boyd Caroli. You know what? I think if I was going to read one book about Lady Bird Johnson, I would read this one because it's really a total picture of both of each of them and of their marriage together. Not exactly about Lady Bird herself. First Women, The Grace and Power of America's Modern First Ladies by Kate Anderson Brower. She had read a book called The Residence, which is about White House staff. And the covers are remarkably similar. But um, it's not exactly a biography as much as it is a very readable compare and contrast of that sorority of first ladies, Jackie, Lady Bird, Pat Nixon, Betty Ford, Rosalind Cotter, Nancy Reagan, Barbara Bush, Hillary Clinton, Laura Bush, and even Michelle Obama is in there. It was published in 2016 when Hillary Clinton was still running for president. In my head, I kind of nicknamed it the Sisterhood of the Traveling Sidekick. As far as kids' book, there was an extraordinarily charming book called Miss Ladybird's Wildflowers, How a First Lady Changed America by Kathy Appelett, illustrated by Joy Fisher-Hine. It was adorable. I think it would make kids want to plant a garden. And it's all about her forming the Wildlife Center. As far as other media, obviously, when um, they open back up again, you could visit the LBJ Presidential Library in Austin, Texas. Although I'll link you up online, they do have a lot of, a lot of, a lot, a lot of resources online. So maybe you don't have to go there. But if you do, you can drive an hour and a half west to the LBJ Ranch, which is a national park site in Stonewall, Texas, and visit the Texas White House. There's also the Johnson Historical Park that you can visit. Uh, unfortunately, there's not much online. It's at the, um, the ranch. The ranch address, 100 Ladybird Lane. Love that. Uh, let's see. You can, Oh, if you're there, go to the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center at the University of Texas at Austin. Now, they do have virtual programs about gardening, about native plants, about yoga, done to music of Tibetan singing bowls. Yeah, they have all kinds of stuff. Um, there's parent and toddler yoga. So cool. But what I loved about their website, they have an extraordinarily extensive native plant database. It's been called the most comprehensive database of native plants for North America. So if you like to garden like I do and think, oh, I really want to plant a Texas blue bonnet now. Will they grow in my area? You can look it up and I will find that. Oh, I don't have to find. I tried already. Yeah, they'll grow here, but they don't do very well. PBS has a good timeline of Lady Bird Johnson online. It's really good for kids. Um, oh, there is a documentary that I'll. I'll put on the show notes. It's done at the Johnson Historical Park. It's on YouTube. There's a whole bunch of her home movies on there. Lyndon had given her a video camera for their first Christmas, and she used it all the time. So there's some videos incorporated into that documentary as others on YouTube. There's a couple movies that are streaming out there. The one that I liked and would recommend is All the Way. It's from 2016. It's on Amazon Prime. It's about Lyndon Johnson from the assassination 
through the first year up to the signing of the Civil Rights Act. It stars Brian Cranston as Johnson. I thought he did an excellent job. He gave the Johnson treatment <laughs> several times in this movie, which gives you a good idea of how Johnson was and also how um, persuasive he could be. Lady Bird is played by Melissa Leo, who did a really good job. She portrayed her as very brave, very positive, very never let them beat you down. I, I like this one. I don't like to watch movies that have a predominantly male cast. I don't know what that says about me. So I didn't actually watch the other Johnson movie that's available, so I can't really talk about it. And that's all I have. Thank you for listening to me today. And next time, Beckett cross everything that she gets her Wi-Fi back up and her uh, the other issues that are going on in her house resolved. Beckett and I will be back and we'll hopefully be talking about that other woman. Well, I can't tell you who it is, but it's somebody that a lot of you request. Thanks for listening. Bye. For links and information about the things I talked about today, visit us at thehistorychicks.com. You can join us on social media. Beckett handles Instagram and Pinterest, and there will be a Pinterest board for this show, just like there is for every show. I'm over on Twitter, although I will admit I haven't been over there actively for quite a while. We do have a public Facebook page, and we have our private Facebook group, The History Chicks Lounge. If you go to our public Facebook page, click Join Group, there is a question that you do need to answer properly. Uh, the group has gotten large enough, and we just want to make sure that it's a group for listeners of the podcast and not a general history or a general women's history group. The music at the breaks was Flower Petals Being Gently Rocked by Large and Slow Waves by Jasmine Brunch. The end song is Down South by Carrie Cano. It's from his album called A Little More Happy.
When it came down to it, landslide, landslide, ling, landslide, Linden was in the end, landslide, ling. As far as this election goes, landslide, Linden didn't earn his nickname. It wasn't a landslide.